to CYC's Fellow Lab Podcast, Personal Statement, Episode 3, where we sit down virtually with influential community leaders and showcase how they make a statement in the community and beyond. I am your host, Mari Haynes. I'm just a senior at Butler High School. I'm also your host, Hannah Roden, a junior at Independence High School. As Amari mentioned earlier, this is episode three of Personal Statement, but it's our first time hosting, and I have to ask, Amari, how excited are you for today's topic? I'm super hyped for today's episode. Last week was very stressful because I was preparing for the SAT, but I'm especially excited this week to interview our special guest. In seminar last week, we had a great discussion about immigration and the effects it has on children, but the conversation doesn't stop there. So joining us today to make a statement is special guest Seal Gonzo, founder and executive director of Our Bridge for Kids, who alongside her dedicated staff works to provide a safe space for immigrant children and breaks down barriers to provide access to resources to Charlotte families. Thank you for joining us, Ms. It's a pleasure to have you. Hi, Hannah and Mari. I'm so excited to be here today. I love working with young people. I miss it so much. To all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Buckle up. Obviously, you're the director of Our Bridge for Kids. Can you tell us a little about your work and like who you work with? Yeah, so our bridge works with kids from all over the world who are newly arrived from 22 different countries, everywhere in Southeast Asia, Africa, Middle East, all over Latin America, Caribbean. Um, and we, we started originally as an after-school program to offer academic support and English acquisition. But, I mean, we became more of a safe space for kids to adjust throughout the transition. And what happens a lot of time is the kids arrive today and tomorrow they're placed in a school and they have to spend seven hours looking at a teacher and they have no idea what's going on. Our bridge is there to kind of provide that, that um, cushion for kids to have a place between home and school where they can adjust and still be themselves and learn English and under, understand social expectations. And the most important part, I mean, that kind of covers all of it is we value the cultural aspect um, and we want the kids to feel proud of who they are and where they come from and understand that having an accent it's an awesome thing, you know, because that really impacts the way that they see themselves and ultimately how they will see themselves in the future. Like what you say about language. I've met some kids who are speak different language and they're like, well, I don't have that American accent. And I'm like, you speak two languages. That's really powerful. We know that our bridge for kids operates as an after school program for immigrant children. But in the midst of this global pandemic, your organization has shifted its focus to providing meals to the Charlotte community. How has that transition been? So um, that happened because, you know, in our culture within our organization, we we are we work very, very hard to not make any decisions on behalf of the families that we work with or the community that we work with. So after the school, the last day of school was over, uh, we spent that weekend just calling families. And because we have um, staff that speaks like six languages, we were all able to just each other have a group of people that we all called um, without the need of an interpreter, which is amazing. Um, and what we heard from the vast majority of the families is that they were worried about meals and food. And we decided to focus 
all of our efforts and human resources and everything that we had in trying to help families. So we started very small. We um, CMS started with the meal program, remember, um, giving the breakfast and lunches. Uh, we picked up 40 packs from CMS and we went to the neighborhood and they were gone in like 10 minutes. So that kind of started the ball rolling. Uh, we ended up, it's peak, it was like 1,500 breakfast and lunches each day. Everything kind of fell into place and we ended up providing 134,000 family-style dinners nonstop. Like, you know, 4th of July, Memorial Day, Sundays, every day. But yeah, I mean, that's that's how that, kind of how we went through. And, and it, it was crazy at the beginning. It, it was the right thing to do, I think. And it kind of worked out. Yeah, I know. Like, I think it's incredible what you're doing, how you're going and you're partnering with CMS and giving breakfast and lunches out throughout quarantine. And it's just, it blows my mind. I'm like, wow, this is really happening. And I just, sometimes the pandemic just doesn't feel real. Yeah, 100%. Are there any volunteer opportunities for fellows like during and after COVID? Yeah, so we are um, we are taking volunteers um, that can do stuff remotely. Actually, we just hired our first ever volunteer coordinator, <laughs> which is great. Um, and we have, um, if you're interested in volunteering, you can um, email um, me or volunteering at joinourbridge.org. And uh, we'll send you all the information. You know, we have things um, to do in the weekends or drives uh, that we are doing for the families. And those are things that you can do safely at your own pace within your own um, circles. Um, we're going to hold off for with volunteers at the center for the first part of the year just to make sure that we had our protocols in place and, um, you know, kind of the bubble like the NBA has been kind of like that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so, um, but if you email um, Shani at volunteering at joinourbridge.org, she's going to let you know and she's going to put you in the list with all upcoming opportunities for volunteering. Okay, I will definitely send you an email. But what I especially wanted to ask you is, what inspired you to create Our Bridge for Kids? When I started working in the after-school world, it was 2010, 10 years ago now. Wow. And I, of course, I'm an immigrant. I'm from Argentina and I, I know there is a large immigrant community here in Charlotte, but I had no idea at the time that there were so many refugees resettled here. At the time, there were about 17,000 of them. After really going beyond what's in the surface, you know, like the food and the festivals, I really saw that there was a lot of gaps in services and a lot of challenges that families were facing even after they were resettled here. I educated myself on the process and realized that there was one thing that we can help was providing kids a place where they can go after school and be helped and provide support for the kids and their families that was not faith-based. That's actually the key reason why we exist. Back in 2010, there was no place where the kids from other countries to go that was not faith-based. And when I heard from parents that they were um, concerned about their kids being taught things that they were not agreed with in the house, I just it just felt wrong. And I kind of understood that if there was something that I could do, was going to be that. That's how Orbridge started. And we started very small with, you know, 70 kids. And um, it, it grew like super quickly. <laughs> we kind of have a very good idea of who we are and who we are not. So that's the reason why we actually started to provide a, 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 an alternative for parents who were not necessarily Christian for the kids to go after school. You give me chills just now. You really did. I don't I'm know. Be careful when I speak about that, though. <laughs> I don't know if it's cold in here or that was you, but I just you know where the Bible bed, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
So what really stood out to me is the fact that you mentioned that you were an immigrant from specifically Argentina. Mm -hmm. Could you please tell us a little bit about your journey to the United States? Yeah, so um, it's been, been, well, I was 20. Um, I finished high school and I was, you know, back in, in the 2001, 2004, Argentina went through a very um, rough patch, like the worst economic crisis that we have seen. We had like seven presidents in a week. That's how bad it was. Like people would just be signed on. They were like, no, I don't want to do that. And then another one and then another one and then another one. Um, and, you know, I was working as a waitress after high school because I couldn't go to college and, and work at the same time. That was not an option. Um, so I decided to, like I said, I love to travel and I love culture. So I decided to, um, I was going to in college to get a major in um, marketing, but I had to drop out. And I started learning English, Italian, Portuguese instead while working. And I wanted to travel. So that's why I went on languages. And one day, I mean, I was just walking from the train station to the coffee shop where I was working. And this guy just handled me a pamphlet. And the pamphlet said, do you want to live and work in the United States for a year? And I was like, eh, why not? So I went, to, uh, I went to the office. We didn't have cell phones. So I went to the office and uh, called this agency. And it was like an au pair, au pair kind of agency. I don't know if you're familiar with au pairs. They recruit girls from all over the world to come to the United States to work as babysitters or nannies, living nannies. And they basically are your living nanny for a dollar and a half an hour. Yeah, so I came to the United States with uh, an au pair uh, visa to work with a family. And I ended up with um, a family in Mooresville, North Carolina. And I remember when I got to their house, it was like a castle. Like I come from Buenos Aires in a very, very urban area. I mean, you know, very, very packed houses next to the other. And I went to um, Morseville. So I stayed there for a while. It didn't work out very well. The program did not end. It was not what I, I thought it was. So I kind of did a rematch. I went to Atlanta. Uh, but by then I had met my now husband. So um, when the year was up, I, I, we kind of we were like, okay, do I go back to Argentina? Do I go to New Zealand? Or I go back to Charlotte? And he was like, nah, come back to Charlotte. So, <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, almost, uh, yeah, 17 years later, I'm, I, we have two kids and uh, here I am. And uh, I, I wouldn't change a bit of it. Um, I loved, I learned a lot for sure. So I'm on a visit in April QC Nerve article that mentions language barrier and translation of information to vulnerable populations such as Charlotte's Hispanic, Southeastern Asian, African, Middle Eastern, and other populations. Are you able to give us an update on this topic? I would love to. The way we put it with the staff is a huge victory in something really, really small. So it's been, we said, like seven months, right, since COVID hit us. And we have not seen... And they said, I haven't seen it, but I know I, I know it wasn't there. I, I would have seen it. Um, we have not seen posters or flyers or brochures or pamphlets of COVID prevention in any other language than English and Spanish. And I brought that up to, um, you know, because it's from the Department of Health and Human Services uh, with uh, Mecklenburg County. So I brought it up to the county commissioners in June. And I'm like, you know, it's been three months. Why aren't you translating, you know, COVID testing sites to many other languages and zero. Um, so what happened um, last week um, after we had 
a huge event at the center with COVID tested in which we, with our very, very, you know, tight budget, we translated all the information in like six, seven languages. And we ended up having one thousand people driving through our, our center to get the COVID um, test, te- um, flu vaccine, um, supplies and masks and all of that. And it was like the effort that you put forward for people to come, right? So I went back to county commissioners and I said, it's been seven months and I do not believe that Mecklenburg County does not have the funds to translate uh, posters so that we can place them in relevant uh, businesses around the area. And an hour went by and I received a call from the from a county person and we're gonna get those posters translated. But it's been seven months. You know, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a feeling like our families, because, you know, I'm talking about specifically Burmese families, Nepali families, uh, families that come from Eritrea, um, you know, Middle East, that they don't have the information that we get. Um, and there's a lot of still of misinformation out there. Um, and they're like always an afterthought. If they live in, in Mecklenburg County, they have to be represented and they have to be, I don't, I hate the word serve, but they have to be counted for. So, I mean, it's been, it's been seven months and, and we're going to get those posters finally. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, and, oh, and then we are like all stressed out because the numbers show that our families have higher um, you know, uh, rates of COVID. Well, no wonder. <laughs> no one reached out in the neighborhoods to give information in their own language and answer questions. And anyhow, I feel kind of proud of, that's why I say, I mean, it's a huge victory because we've been trying to get it done for months in something so simple, like translating documents. Mm-hmm. But even though we're still in high school, Charlotte has been ch- constantly changing right before I was literally in the middle of a pandemic. Like I never thought in history this would happen, but it's happening. And not to, be, to mention the upcoming election. Have you witnessed any changes when it comes to the acceptance and attitudes towards immigrants, particularly here in Charlotte? Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yes. So I have seen a huge, huge, huge change for the positive in, in, in the number of people that don't necessarily live like on the east side where it's so diverse, you know, families and people that live in South Charlotte, North Charlotte, West Charlotte. And I, I feel like the knowledge and the awareness has changed drastically as far as like residents go, right? I mean, I we have right now with this meal vendors from CMS, we have people from schools all over the city uh, coordinated themselves to get the bundles and bring them to a center so we can distribute into our families. And that, that didn't happen, it happened 10 years ago. People did not, it's not that they didn't care, it's like they didn't know. It was like a lack of awareness that you know, we, we had this huge population in Charlotte and people became much more, you know, accepting and they go to festivals and they want to volunteer. And that's fascinating. I wish to see that same change for the best in our elected officials and uh, local government, because they're like two different stories there. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I was just about to talk about. Like today's political climate is very polarizing and it seems to lead to a lack of empathy. How would you help someone better understand the immigrant struggle beyond a common perception? That's a great question. Um, 
something that I uh, that that I and, and of course our team we we're very clear on is try to kind of change the narrative the narrative of of two way in two ways. So narrative one is you know um, how how it's driven by pity. Like we don't want our stories to be told in a in a pity sense. You know they were dying and they were hungry and they were almost died and they lived. We don't at least on our bridge we don't we don't own their stories before they arrived here. So we don't we don't we don't talk about it. I mean if they want to share it, that's very personal and that's very. Um, private so trying to change the narrative i mean we have families who are here and they are here because um they want to find a better future for the families and we are human and it is our job to support each other um the other thing that i i try to to make sure that that um we convey in our messages is yes immigrants contribute a ton of money into the economy actually i have a couple um couple numbers for you how about this i just i just read about this today um immigrants are 80 percent more likely to start a business than american-born people the number of jobs created by immigrants is 45 percent higher than american-born people and but all of those contributions go to economy and money and numbers and i kind of try to 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 put outside the fact that we're human. Whether I, I have bring value and money, it, it doesn't matter. It's a matter of humanity, you know. I mean, and, and uh, a matter of feeling accepted and developing a sense of belonging and just community and it's just humanity and dignity and respect for each other. I mean, I think that that's way more important than all the numbers that I can give you um, and all the stories that I can tell you. You know. Mm-hmm. So, what is your plan during this time? after you're done giving out food for the families? We went back to the families and asked them, you know, what's their next concern um, or, or the current concern right now that school started. And we have heard that, you know, a, a lot of the families still are having trouble connecting to the internet and um, having a place that is conducive to learning at home. So we have the space and we have the technology and we have the connectivity. So we're going to open up the center for a third of the kids that used to come and be open from 8 until 4.30 and offer, you know, um, support while the kids are doing their uh, learning with school and then staying um, after school to do some disconnecting, you know, outdoor time with gardening and other cool things. So we're going to be open for kids soon again. Wow, that sounds so exciting. I know you guys miss kids very much because it was like it's like not the same where you can't like have like actual contact with people you know yeah and and you know that's something that the parents are are worried about you know the kids the kids need that contact and and just the playing and i know there is there i know that we can make it and do it safely and the reason why we're taking so long is because we want to cover all of our bases you know we're purchasing air purifiers and we are placing hand washing stations at every door and um you know to beautifying the outdoor space to spend more time outside a mask for kids every day new and all of that takes some planning to do but i know that we can do it so how can we show support for immigrants in our daily lives during especially this current 
political climate? I would say, number one, of course, support uh, organizations supporting immigrant refugee families. Number two, advocating for them. You know, I mean, if you see, it's going to happen again at some point. We're going to have rates of ICE again in the neighborhoods. And when you see that happening, I would love to see more young people standing with us, you know, and, and packing up the city council and just telling the mayor, we cannot accept this. You can, you need to condone this um, because our voices are expected, right? If, when that happens, somebody with my accent obviously is going to speak up against it. But if, if we have more of our young, powerful American born citizens, you know, standing up with us, that's going to be a huge, huge change. And, and that's something that is not really expected. So that would be my request. I've asked people of color need to kind of get together and support each other. Yes. And I love what you said about like, um, like going to the, like the government center. Cause I did an internship last summer at the Charlotte government center and I worked along with the mayor and the city council. And this mm-hmm. is one of the important conversations that we actually discussed. So it's just great that you brought that up, whether they're from a di- a different racial background or speak a different language, they, they deserve to make it just as much. And that's what I constantly have to advocate to people who may not understand that. Raising your voice and being present, it's, it, it makes a huge difference. I sometimes I feel like I'm like bothering them all the time. At, or I made the decision to use the platform that was created around me and our bridge to uphold and uplift the families and the communities that we work with and not so much about you know rubbing elbows and being friends with this and being invited to that being you know, on the top five of, of, of a very high popular person I mean I, I really don't that doesn't like I don't care it's weird you know I mean it's like I respect and I, I, there's a lot of people in the city that I respect, you know, but at the same time, if I have to send you an email because I'm disappointed for something that happened or something that is not happening, I will. And I feel that's kind of what has been happening through the pandemic with the Board of Education, with the city of Charlotte, with, you know, um, Mecklenburg County. Um, I kind of, I kind of don't like to be like, oh, still again. So you were like, you were talking about how you were sort of like a stone in the shoe or, and ha- I really think that like, that's important though, because by that phrase, I sort of mean like the nabbing, you just can't get it. And it's a bothersome, but you, even if you are considered a bother by them, it's important that you're persistent because that persistence is what makes these changes and puts them in place. Thank you for saying that, Hannah. I feel like, but again, I mean, it's, it's a matter of justice, right? I mean, it's, but I can change it because I mean, I can, I can stay still and be quiet, you know? So even if I knew that I wanted to change it, I don't think I could. That leads us into this next segment called Factor Fiction. We've compiled seven statements that we've heard in discussions with friends or even in the media about immigrants and refugees. I would like for you to inform us if they're fact or fiction. Okay. Okay, this one. Okay, let the the games begin. So I'm gonna be dramatic for a minute. I love being dramatic. Okay. Or fiction. Immigrants do not contribute to the economy but receive benefits. Fact or fiction? Fiction. (laughs) Lie. Not true. In fact, you know, immigrants um, contribute more than undocumented immigrants contribute even more because they pay taxes through something called uh, W, no, an IT number, which it looks like a social security number, but it starts with a nine and that allows them to pay taxes, but they don't receive anything back. Wow. 
Yeah, like people like to say, oh, they don't contribute to this. I've seen them contribute more than anyone because people say that rich people do not, you know, pay taxes. That's not good fair. Yeah. (laughs) That's a whole different story. But yeah, I mean, and and they don't qualify for Medicaid. They don't qualify for Social Security, uh, food stamps, not even the uh, COVID relief, you know, super generous grant that was given a few months ago. (laughs) Number two, the path to citizenship is easy if you do it the right way. Fiction. There is no path to citizenship unless there are three ways, mainly, that you can get citizenship if you're an undocumented immigrant. You either marry an American-born or a citizen. You um, wait for your child to turn 21. And that child needs to be able to support you. And three, and this is something that not everybody knows, that you get beat up in a corner and you apply for a U visa as a um, victim of a crime. Wow. And none of those are easy or affordable. And it can take three, four, five years. Wow. Okay. Number and I'm not a lawyer, so don't get me anything. I'm just, those are like what I see with family. <laughs> <laughs> Disclaimer. <laughs> Number three. We're not going to quote you. Okay, no, I mean, I'm just saying that those, 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 that's like what I heard. <laughs> immigrants value and prioritize education that impacts their efforts toward achieving educational and career goals yeah 100 percent um there is um there is this this um common belief that you know especially um latin american parents don't care about school because they're not present because they're volunteer because they're not chaperones and the reality is that where we come from, and I can tell you that on my own experience, my mother has never, ever put a foot on the school unless like to enroll me. Because at school, the teacher is your mother. And if the teacher said that you did something, you did it, uh, which I'm not 100% agree on, but however. Um, and if the teacher called your mother, it was because you were in trouble. So, I mean, the cultural expectations and the, and, and the you know, Social expectations are different. So I see why a lot of our parents um, try to stay away from the school because they, they really want to keep their space, but it's not that they don't care. And also, I mean, they parents could be more involved in their kids' education if they were allowed. Parents who don't have a driver's license um, don't cannot go through driver's license or social security. They cannot go through a um, background check, so they cannot chop around. So I wish they were... They were allowed to, but. Okay. This one is particularly my favorite one. This is my top favorite. American steals jobs from, uh, immigrants steals jobs from Americans. No, not true. <laughs> yeah, that's not true. No, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, it's such an easy low fruit to sell, right? I mean, but it's not, I mean, actually, uh, and if it was true, let's say it was true, if if we were all given a path to citizenship and our families and our, our people were paid what they're supposed to be paid, that will not be an issue. You know, there are companies that pay very low wages because they're allowed to. So it's kind of, uh, they benefit a lot from it. Let me just say that. Number five, 
Immigrants are hardworking people that take pride in their work. Yes. Yeah. Like you said, I mean, they, 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 they're here because they want a, a better opportunity to a better life for their kids. And that's the reason I think why I also decided to do a life here. You know, I mean, Argentina, I love it and I miss it every single day. But at the time, there was nothing for me there. Wow. That's, that's amazing. So I'm going to do the last one, sadly. Last but not least. Okay. Immigrants bring rich, diverse stories that make our communities more inclusive. Yes, 100%. Okay. So thank you for playing Fact or Fiction. I'm here every week, you know, if you ever <laughs> want to play anyone. <laughs> All right. So in honor of National Hispanic Heritage Month, Ms. Maria shared the stories of Latino-Hispanic leaders and their numerous contributions, as well as traditions and celebration. We would like to know what are some of your favorite traditions from Argentina? Ooh, okay. Um I still drink mate every day. Do you know what mate is? No. no? Okay. Is mate it's a it's a it's a drink, it's like a cup. And we put sherba in it, which is like a green tea dried. And we have a bombisha, which is uh, like a straw that you put inside the sherba. And you put hot water and sugar and you drink through the straw. You know, you dr I, we drink it all the time, all day long. So that's one. Another tradition um, for, I don't know if we're going to do it this year. Of course, I highly, highly doubt it. We're actually not. Uh, for Christmas, we don't celebrate Christmas Day or Christmas Eve, we celebrate Christmas 11 p.m. on the 24th. So we kind of party until like 5 a.m. in the morning. And that's uh, completely normal. And all the kids are like outside and uh, we're gonna stay up um, on on the 25th and in New Year's. That's another tradition that we do. That sounds very tasty and I'm kind of hungry now. <laughs> And fantastic but we believe that we all have a role to play when it comes to moving our world towards becoming a better place and you're making the world a better place one meal and one care package at a time so when people think about still gonzo 100 years from now what is the number one statement that you want to have made Ooh, mari <laughs> okay <laughs> it comes like I, I i kind of i feel like i've been being um like the stone in the shoe <laughs> of a lot of people um i don't know i mean i i think that um i i don't mind being referred as like outspoken um because i am <laughs> i think that it's uh it's um how could you say this? Like, um, narrative changer, it's one, mm -hmm. you know? I think that that's, that kind of drives our work at the center, trying to change how we are seeing what it's believed of us and what is expected of us, you know? I mean, it's, we, we can give a lot and we can do a lot if we feel that we belong. And I feel like a lot of times our families don't feel like they belong. And that's, that creates a, 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 a an issue and, and a drama and it's a mindset, right? If I don't belong here, where, what do I do? I just survive instead of just thrive. Things can change if you seek the change. Mm -hmm. So things have been the same way for so long 
I don't know. There's a word in Spanish called conformarse, which is like, oh, okay, fine. I mean, it's been like that forever. I'll just go with it. And we we shouldn't we shouldn't do that. You know, if we see something is wrong, we should we should do something to try to change it and fix it. So I think that um, changing narrative is it's it's something that kind of drives me. That was a powerful statement. But thank you, Ms. Gonzo, for a great conversation. Thank you, everyone, for joining. And I'll see you guys next week.